0: Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. How did we become a Southern Baptist Church? What is a Southern Baptist Church and why will we remain a Southern Baptist Church? It's because in 1517, a guy by the name of Martin Luther had a document that he nailed onto the door of the church in his hometown. And it was 95 theses that was not the start of the Protestant Reformation, but it was the tipping point for the Protestant Reformation. So words are important. Protestant comes from the word protest. Reformation is to reform or to change. So the intention of Martin Luther on that day was not to break away from the Catholic Church. And by the way, in that day, there were only really two strains of the global church. You had the um, Orthodox Church and you had the Catholic Church. That was it. You didn't have Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Calvary Church. You didn't have all those things. You had Orthodox and you had Catholic in 1517, the desire was to protest the way that the Catholic Church was operating and what their theology was because it had veered from its original operating uh, uh, operations and theology. It had veered from it. And so the protest was in an attempt to reform back to the original intent of the Church. What it did, though, was spark a schism that became Protestant and Catholic, right? And so now you have this this schism, and it's basically a belief schism. The reasoning behind the break was the protest was against the abuses and against the theological um, um, uh, uh, waywardness, we can call it, Of the Catholic Church. Now, let me just be clear to say this message is not about Catholicism, it's not about anybody else, it's about us. I'm simply giving you the history, okay? There were five solas that were the foundation of the Protestant Reformation. There were five issues that these reformers had with the Catholic Church in 1517. The five solas, or sola fide, sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola gratia, and sola deo gloria. I only read you the Latin so you'd think I was smart. <laughs> Notice I had to read it. because keep, But it, it's basically, sola means alone or only. And then each of those Latin words has to do with a core belief in what the gospel really is. So the reformers wanted to get the church back to salvation by faith alone by Scripture alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone, with glory to God alone. Now, if you think about that, all that was going on in the church then had had veered from these things. There were other things added to salvation. In order to be saved, you had to do these things. In order to, uh, to, to, to know what God said, you had to do these things. And so... The church had become a very hierarchical structure. Hierarchical means that there is somebody at the top. Who declares for everybody else below. To listen to and to have to do. Now the reformers said that's not right. Because as a follower of Jesus. As a Christian. As a believer. I have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. To be given direct access to the Father. And so because of that. I should have access to the scripture. And because of that, the scripture should be my foundation in everything that I do. So I should not have to listen to one person tell me what the scripture means. I should be able to go to the scripture and the Holy Spirit tell me what the scripture means. Obviously not in a vacuum, but but I should have that ability because I have one mediator according to the scripture and that one mediator is Christ Jesus alone. And so that was kind of the birth of the protestant reformation but here's where it gets really fun out of this desire to reform the church there was this schism that caused the people who were the reformers the people who were the protesters to be on very dangerous ground with the church so much so that a large number of reformers you know talking about zwingli and and uh Calvin and Luther and all these guys, a large number of these guys died as heretics. Now, I want you to think about this. They died trying to defend salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, scripture alone, or the glory of God alone. They died for biblical principles that they believed in, trying to reform the church. But the church said, no, you can't do that. And they gave their life for it. Of all of these things that you hear me say today, I want you to hear me say this. None of us have our faith because we just woke up one day and said, you know what? I'm going to build my own faith. It's like Build-A-Bear. I'm just going to go and I'm a foremost. No, no. Everything you believe is on the back of the foundation that somebody else laid. That's true. You don't believe what you believe because you just came to it one day. You learn from someone who had some history who was taught by someone the scripture and that was passed on down to you. So we need to appreciate our roots. We need to appreciate where we came from. These this this schism or this faction of the church known as which became known as the Protestant Reformation kind of kind of filled out over the next two centuries. So in the 16th century and the 17th century, it started factioning more and more and more. All of those factions were over what the Bible actually says. That was the issue. What does the Bible say about salvation? What does the Bible say about how the church operates? What does the Bible say about how we as the people of God are to operate into the world? Now, listen to this. Out of that one schism, out of that one faction, you had separatist and non-separatist. Separatists were those who'd say we have to separate from the world. Non-separatists say we have to, to, to not separate but change from within. Actually, separatists not from the world but from the church. We have to separate and not separate. You had these people called the Puritans who actually came over on the Mayflower, which our country was founded on the principles of the Protestant Reformation because they believed that a person should have the right to approach God not necessarily on their own terms, but they ought to be able to approach God, not because the government says so, but because their own conscience declares that they have the right to do so. You have John Wesley who started Methodism. You have others who started uh, the, the, the nature of, uh, like John Calvin probably would be the founder, I guess, of Presbyterianism. And you have all of these different factions. But all of those were this group called Protestants, okay? Okay. So here's some terms. A denomination is the coloring of the Protestants. Does that make sense? So if I have a dollar bill, if I have a bill, you can say, what is that? You can say either it's a dollar bill or you can say it's U.S. money. U.S. money is the overarching term. The denomination is the number on the bill. So a 20, a 1, a 100, a 5, that's the denomination. It's all the same usage, but it's just different kinds of usage. Or my favorite illustration on how to make this clear is chocolate. Because everything can be explained by chocolate, right? (laughs) So you have dark chocolate and you have milk chocolate, right? Now, I'm kind of weird on this one because I prefer dark chocolate. chocolate. And you actually have white chocolate too. Yes, you do. But don't mess up the illustration, okay? (laughs) That's that's going too far. White chocolate will be orthodox. We'll just call them it. So, so you have dark chocolate, which is Catholic, and you have milk chocolate, which is Protestant. But in milk chocolate, you have a bunch of different brands. Let's say M&M's. You have peanut M&M's. You have Halloween M&M's. See what I'm saying? So you've got, it's all the same basic stuff, but it, it, it's expressed differently. That's what you have with the Protestant Reformation, and that's what you have with the different denominations. So some people, especially people like me when I was younger, I used to be so critical of denominations. God never intended for his church to be split. Why do we have to have all, why do just all be one? Well, here, let me tell you how. You gather your own family together, and you sit around a table, and you make decisions. And you tell me how many times you're going to come to the exact same decision, all in agreement, Right? Some of y'all are going to say, I want beef for dinner. That's my vote, by the way, in case you're wondering. Some of y'all are going to say, I want chicken for dinner. And you can fight and you can fuss all day long, but there's a difference of opinion. It's not that one is right and one is wrong, necessarily. It's that you're seeing things differently. That's why denominations are the way they are. Because it's how, in how Scripture is understood. And it says, well, you know what? I understand it like this group of people, so we're going to go and we're going to do kingdom of God together. Well, I understand it this way, so we're going to do the kingdom of God together. What's really important is not the secondary issues as much as the foundational issues that we know as faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. That's why we can be friends with other denominations and not have to, not have to be like separate from them. We can respect and we can work together because the fundamentals of the faith are together and are the same, okay? So that moves us to the next question. I promise you, I promise you we're going to open up God's word. I'm just trying to build the, okay? So out of that schism, you had a group called the Anabaptist. Anna means again. Baptist comes from the Greek word baptizo or baptizimo, however Form you want to use, which means to be immersed or to go under, to be baptized. And so the Anabaptists were those who said, Baptism is for those who have been born again, those who have trusted Christ. The Catholic Church was baptizing infants, and there was this strong belief that if you were born into a family who was Catholic, well, you were Catholic, you were part of the church, and at some point you might have that confirmation, but. You were in the church and under the grace because of the family. Anabaptists said, no, no. Baptism is not for babies. Baptism is for those who have placed their faith in Christ. And it's an external expression of something that's happened on the inside. It's the exact picture of immersion. You uh, are died with Christ. You were buried with him and then raised again into life. That's the picture of baptism. And so the Anabaptists were saying, that system is not right. It's not biblically correct we have to be baptized as believers. That group of Protestants is your history. Southern Baptists came from Anabaptists. But you should also know that multiple groups came out of that. Groups that have Baptist in the name label in the number of 50. So there are 50 or so different Baptist denominations you got general baptist you got northern baptist you got particular baptist you got specific baptist you got missionary baptist and eventually you got southern baptist southern baptists happen to be the largest protestant denomination in our country but it doesn't mean that we're the only denomination it just happens to be the largest okay so here are the distinctives of what it means to be baptist and i'll show you why we believe this Y'all with me so far? Turn to the person next to you and say, hold on. Just hold on. <laughs> It'll get better. You can lie to him if you want. So, Baptist, here's the curious thing. When you look for a list of Baptist distinctives, a distinctive is what makes something distinct, what makes something unique, what's, what makes something be what it is. You'll get anywhere from five distinctives to eight distinctives. So it's like we can't even agree on what the distinctives are. Right? It's like, well, what is it? At it? And here's what I've discovered. At its basic core level, there are five distinctives that make a Baptist a Baptist. Not a Southern Baptist, but a Baptist big term. But within those five, there are some who will make divisions out of like one. They'll make it two, just to be more clear, or to bring more clarification to those distinctives. So let me tell you the five ...distinctives of a Baptist, general Baptist, or big, big Baptist church, right? Not big. You know what I'm talking about. Number one, a Baptist is one who believes in a regenerate church membership. That means that you're not a member of the church because you're born into a family who's a member of the church. That means that you're not a member of a church of the church just because you come. Membership in a Baptist church... Is because you've been born again and you've been baptized by immersion as a symbol or as a testimony of being born again. You say, well, why do we believe that? Where did that come from? I'm glad you asked. Acts chapter 2. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, in verse... And and by the way, this passage is actually for the first two points. Regenerate church membership, it's one distinctive. The second distinctive is believer's baptism as opposed to infant baptism. So Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and following. says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Who is them? Them is the church, the, the believers in the city. So the passage is saying... They repented and believed on the name of Jesus, and as a result, they were baptized as a demonstration of that belief. And when they did that, they were added to the membership of the church, and they were able to be called a follower of Christ, a church member. Now, this is distinct from some other um, um, church beliefs, because there are other churches, particularly the Catholic Church, that membership is not for believers only. Now I have to say this being carefully. Because we've gone so long from 1517. That there, there, there's been different theological shifts. So sometimes sometimes even large denominations can shift their, their theology on this. But by and large the, the understanding was. A church member is someone who knows Jesus. They're born again. They've trusted in Christ Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. They followed through in believers baptism. It's not a child who is baptized. It's not someone who's even been sprinkled. They've followed the biblical pattern of being immersed. Those two are distinctives of what it means to be a Baptist. The third is congregational polity. How many of y'all have ever said the word polity in a conversation? Anybody? Yeah, probably not many of us. Because you're like, what in the world's a polity? You mean policy? No, polity. Polity with a T means government. Government. How does a church govern, or or how is a church governed? The break with the Protestants and the break with the Baptists is that Baptists do not have a hierarchical church polity. That means we don't have a pope, we don't have bishops, we have a church who governs herself. This is why all of these distinctives are important, though, Because for a Baptist church, we are self-governed. Some of you don't know this because I've talked to you and you're like, I didn't know we did it that way. But we as a church hire our own pastors. We as a church fire our own pastors. Nobody outside the membership of the church can say, you must have this pastor or you can't have that pastor. That is the sole responsibility and right of this particular body. That's as opposed to other structures that say you will have this pastor and you will have this pastor for X number of years. Other denominations do that. They have biblical reasons for doing it. But we have biblical reasons for not doing it. Let me show you what some of those are. If you turn in your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And by the way, this is... This is... um, Congregational polity—a fourth, a fourth distinctive—is the autonomy of a local church, and these two are together, but they're 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 different things. Does that make sense? Let me explain the terms again. Congregational polity means self-governed, not a hierarchical structure. Autonomy means we are independent of other churches. So you see how the two are together, but they're 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 distinct. In Second uh, Corinthians chapter eight. This this is is the the, one of the the reasons we are this way, because we're trying to follow what the scripture says. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. This is where the scripture records Paul going to the Macedonian churches and it says this we want you to know brothers and sisters about the grace of god that was given to the churches of macedonia during a severe trial brought about by affliction their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part i can testify according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry of the saints and not just as we had hoped but instead they gave themselves first to the lord and then to us by god's will And the idea here is this, that the Macedonian church decided that as a church, they would send money, even out of their own poverty, they would send money with the apostles to give to the church in Jerusalem. So what we see is a picture of a church being autonomous and self-governed, that they themselves decided, hey, God is leading us as the body to do this work for the kingdom of God. And so as a church, that's the way we are governed. We don't listen to someone else to tell us what to do. We decide what we will do. But here's the rub. Every member of the church has a say in the polity and in the leadership and direction of the church. But do you see how there are certain criteria that we have to understand in order for that to actually work? Because again, go back to your own family. Let's say you have 10 people in your family. It's a big family. And out of the 10 people in your family, one is the black sheep. One is the one who is always contrary. One is the one who is always negative. One is the one who is always wanting to do what everybody else doesn't want to do just because everybody else wants to do it, right? And you have this time of decision. Hey, let's make a decision on where we're going to eat dinner. And nine people agree We're going to go to Starbucks. Okay, well, you wouldn't go to Starbucks for dinner. Uh, Wherever you go, Chick-fil-A, right? Let's make it Christian. Ah, you like that, don't you? And then the 10th person says, no, 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 I don't want to go there. They create problems because they've given an equal vote in in the whole decision-making process. Now, that's a silly illustration, but it, it actually demonstrates why Baptist churches have had so much conflict in their history. Because any time you open up to 100 people, I'm just talking about 100 people. Could you imagine doing this with 800 people or 1,000 people? Could you imagine having 1,000 people decide the color of the carpet? Could you imagine 100 people deciding the color of a carpet? No, it's insane. And yet, for, for centuries, that's how, as a Baptist church, we operate. And even to a degree now, that's how we still operate. That's why we have these things called family meetings. That's our pretty name for a business meeting because nobody wants to go to a business meeting, but maybe they'll come to a family meeting because your input as a member of the church actually matters. And the reason we believe that is because of another distinctive on the number eight, on the eight list, but it's not on the five list. And that distinctive is what we call the priesthood of the believer. Have I talked about that already? Okay, I couldn't remember. Priesthood of the believer... Because I just preached this over. I'm just kind of running together. Priesthood of the believer is the doctrine or the belief that we believe is taught in scripture. That you don't go through a mediator to get to God. Jesus is the mediator. That's why you don't call me and say, hey, can I come and repent of my sin to you? That's why I don't have a box that, that I have to sit in and open the window. And you have to tell me all the things that were bad that you did. We don't do confession like that because you confess... To God the Father. You have direct and immediate access to God the Father because He has made you a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belong to God. Second Peter tells us this. Turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter two. Y'all with me still? All right, hang on. 2 Peter, towards the end, chapter 2. The scripture tells us in, I said 2 Peter, my bad, it's actually 1 Peter. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 9. It says, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. A people for his possession. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This and other passages remind us that we have direct communication and direct Uh, approach to God the Father. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man. It's Christ Jesus. And so the reason congregation or the way congregational polity, self and autonomy works is because we have a regenerate membership that you're only a member which gives you the right to help lead. You're only a member if you've been born again and baptized But it also presupposes that you are faithful to the gospel as revealed in the scripture. By the way, that's another um, uh, one of the distinctives that's listed as a distinctive in the larger list. that's not in the smaller list because the smaller list presupposes that the scripture alone is what we build our theology on. So you're born again, you're baptized, you follow the scripture... You are a priest unto God as a follower of Christ and the Holy Spirit's inside of you. And therefore, the decisions you make are made in light of those things which enable you to be able to make good decisions as the church. You follow me so far? Here's where this gets ugly. If ten of you are spiritual people. You walk with God, you pray, you're you're faithful to the gospel, you're living in obedience to the gospel. And yet ten of you are nominal Christians. There was a day when you said, yeah, I prayed to receive Christ, but there's nothing in your life that has the fruit of the gospel in it. You're not living for Christ, you, you have a life that looks like everybody else. But if you come to make spiritual decisions as an unspiritual person... Or let's say it this way, make holy decisions and yet you live a life that is not holy. How can you direct the affairs and functions of the church, right? That's where it gets ugly. Because the people who are trying to be faithful to scripture have to have an equal vote with the people who aren't being faithful to the scripture. That's why Baptist churches often are in a lot of confusion and chaos. That is the issue. So what do we do about it? Here's the beautiful part. Congregational polity means as the church, we decide how we are governed. Remember, this is important because in the near future, we're going to have to review our documents, our governing documents, and decide how we are governed and say, are we doing it the way we want to or do we need to change some things? But as a church, we can decide everything from I want to have the whole church make every decision. I do not recommend that, by the way. Please, by the grace of God, do not do, not do that, <laughs> right? We can say we make every decision together as a whole church, or we can say we will make some decisions, the larger decisions as a whole church, but other day-to-day normal decisions, we will give that responsibility to a few people that are called out by the church as elders or pastors or deacons or whatever we might do. You have that entire range to decide how we will be governed. We're going to get into the leadership, what the Bible says about leadership later on. But the fact is, we're not given a, this is how you do it. We're given a, this is how it was done in the New Testament. But even then, there's a lot of room to decide exactly the specifics of how we do it, right? As a church, we have to decide that for ourselves. Turn to the person next to you and say, be praying for wisdom. And be praying for holiness. Because I can tell you this. It is impossible to get a group of believers together to make a spiritual decision without there being disagreement. It's impossible. But that's okay. Because the beauty is in the conversation. I mean, how boring would your life be if you always got in the car? Hey, let's go to there. Okay, great. Hey, let's do that. Okay, great. Hey, let's go here. Okay, great. That would be awful. I mean, we're not awesome. No, the fun is, hey, let's do this. No, I want to do this. Well, why do you want to do that? Because I want to do this. And, and eventually you go, okay, we'll do it together, right? That, that compromise or that, that, that meeting of the minds is where the beauty is. That's what it means to be of one mind and of one faith. It means that, the, that, that each of us has sacrificed a little bit of our own wants for the cause of the greater good of the body of Christ. That's what it means to be truly diverse and yet unified. That's why we do what we do. Okay, so five uh, distinctives of what a Baptist church is. Regenerate church membership, that means it's a believer's church. Believer's baptism by immersion. It's congregational in its polity. We are autonomous, meaning we don't have another church or another entity tell us what to do. What we have to do, what we have to believe. And then the fifth... Is religious liberty. Now this ought to make you. Uh, uh, just go. Huh? A Baptist church. Is a very strong believer. In religious liberty. Now if you look at the history. You'll know why we were that way. Because it used to be that the church. And the state. Were married together in this thing. That's called Christendom. You've heard that term right? Christendom. Christendom essentially started in 324-27 A.D. with Constantine. It's when the church and the state became unified. And listen, a Baptist distinctive is that if the church is married to the state, the church cannot criticize the state. Not criticize to be mean, but criticize to call out injustice, and the things that are wrong, because we all know that left to their own devices, the state normally doesn't act in the best interests of interests of the people, but they act in the best interest of those who are making the rules for their own power and popularity and pockets. Amen. Does anybody disagree with that? I invite you to go back and look at the history of the world if you do, because that's what historically governments has done. But the church and the state married, and here's why. Because the church didn't have the money, but they had the hearts of the people. They didn't have the power, they had the hearts of the people. The state had the money and the power, but not the hearts of the people. So the state said, if you turn the hearts of the people towards us, we will make sure that you are okay and you are protected and you are given certain liberties and rights and privileges. Can you see how very quickly that system would turn into a dilution of the true nature of the gospel and it would take away from the mission and the purpose of the church and it would create the mess that we have seen historically throughout the ages? That's one of the reasons the pro- the Protestants, the Protesters said we must return to scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, so that God gets the glory alone. That was the reason, or one of the main reasons for that happening. But as a Baptist, we believe strongly in religious freedom. We believe there should be a separation of church and state. Now here's where I think we've gone wrong, particularly over the last handful of years. The church has become so politicized that they have eroded their ability to proclaim the gospel to all nations. Anything we do that takes away our ability to proclaim the kingdom of God, the gospel, to all nations is something we ought to stay away from or at the very least be extremely careful with. Our, the easiest example would be a political persuasion, whether it's Democrat or Republican, right? I hope you, I hope you remember that you've never heard me proclaim a political candidate from the platform, From the stage. Why? Because if half of you go one way and half of you go the other way, whoever I proclaim, I make enemies of the other group. Right? And here's the thing. I don't mind if you don't like me because of the gospel. But if you can't hear me preach the gospel because I'm talking about something that is not gospel, that's a problem. Because I'm not a preacher of the government and I'm not a preacher of politics. I'm a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a church, that's who we are as well. Now you say, well, wait a minute. We're supposed to be part of religious liberty. Yes, we are. But it must always, always, always be Jesus first and foremost. And everything under that, making sure that we do not sacrifice the gospel message in the midst of it. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not poking fun. I'm simply saying that's, that's who we are in our history as a church. We believe in religious freedom. And as a church, we've had multiple instances of... From both Democrat and Republican who have preached politics over gospel. And my friends, that is never God's intention. You might say, well, how do you know the difference between the two? Well, maybe that's a little something we can discuss. But at the end of the day, Jesus is what we preach. Paul said it this way, Apostle Paul, he said, I have determined to preach Christ crucified, nothing else. That's really my goal. Preach Christ crucified. And resurrected. I think he said that too. Died, buried. That is the goal. So there are things that I'd love to speak on, but I can't because that will make an enemy of some people that I don't want you to be an enemy for that. I want to be an ally for the sake of the gospel. Because I believe that the gospel fixes everything. I believe that when you trust Jesus Christ, that brings unity and peace to all of those other areas of life. The way we fix this country is for people to believe in the gospel. Because when we believe in the gospel, we will do things gospel way, not man-centered way. That's what I had to say about that. So, you can say amen if you want. I I wouldn't be offended. All right. so. Regenerate church membership, believers baptism, congregational polity, local church autonomy, religious freedom. Those are the five... um, Those are the five um, distinctives of what it means to be Baptist. But we... Are Southern Baptist. Here's where it gets ugly. Southern Baptists have a sordid history because we came about in a time where we separated from Northern Baptists over the issue primarily of slavery. Southern Baptists believed in holding slaves, Southern Baptists believed that there were biblical reasons for holding slaves. In fact, Southern Seminary, one of the flagship seminaries that, that Southern Baptists have. There are six of them. Southern Baptists, it's actually called THE Southern Baptist, if that tells you anything. It's like the founding, right? The four founders of that institution were all slaveholders. Between the four of them, they held over 50 slaves. Fortunately, Southern Baptists, back in the 90s, publicly repented over their stance on slavery. I believe most everybody in this room, if not everybody in this room, would say slavery was inherently wrong. We handled it poorly as a nation. It created great injustice. It did things that ought not to have been done. People suffered and people died over an unbiblical, ungodly view of slavery. I think most of all of us, I hope we would all agree with that. And yet that is part of our history as Southern Baptists. So the question is, why would we stay with something that had a history over that? And it's like this, because I'm not I don't want to make it this simple, but this is just the way I can explain it. If I get dressed and I walk out and I say to Shannon, hey, how do I look? She says, oh, you know what? That that shirt is awesome. That that belt's perfect. That those pants are are, are exactly what you need. That blazer is exactly fit. Everything looks great. The socks even match, but, but those shoes just don't match. I don't go and change everything I'm wearing. What do I do? I change my shoes, right? Because everything else works, everything else is good. It's my shoes that are the problem. Fortunately, in the 90s, we finally said, hey, we were boneheads and we sinned against God and we sinned against man. We repent of this, but it doesn't mean everything else we believe. Because would you disagree with religious liberty? Would you disagree with priesthood of the believer? Would you disagree with biblical authority? No, of course not. You would say, we got it wrong on that, but we're going to fix that. Not fix it, but we're going we're to repent of that, but we're going to keep the stuff that works. And the reason that we are Southern Baptists, even in spite of doing some bonehead... Listen, if the camera's watching, we do some bonehead things, even today. We make declarations. Sometimes I go, oh my goodness. Ay, ay, ay. Sometimes it's like, come on. But even in... But hey, what denomination are we going to go to that doesn't do the same thing? Right? Where are we going to go? That's not going to have some bonehead decisions. Here's the reason I'm proud to be a Southern Baptist. Because the bigger issue is that we cooperate. This is what makes us Southern Baptist. We cooperate on missions. We have voluntary cooperation for proclaiming the gospel in fulfillment of the Great Commission. If you will, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I promise you we are taking this plane into the the airport right here. Okay, I promise. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said to the disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, he's saying this to the people of God, to the believers. The people called the church. So, how are we, for a hundred people... Going to fulfill this commitment. And furthermore, if you go backwards just a little bit to the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. He says the same thing just with a few more words. Yeah, well. When you need sticky fingers, you can't have them. Here we go. Matthew chapter 28, verse... Uh, 16, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, the mountains where Jesus directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped and some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey and observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. How are we as a 100 people going to do that? How are we going to go to the ends of the earth? You might say, well, we just did. Yes, but we didn't do it alone. The deal is the greatest thing going for Southern Baptist. Is that we have a cooperative effort for missions. That truly is the very best system that exists in the world today. Let's say Carson wants to be a missionary. Out of the church, he says, I want to be a missionary. And as a church, we say, We're going to send you. To send him to the place that God has called him would cost us thousands and thousands of dollars. It would cost 70, 80, $100,000 because we got to worry about his health. We got to worry about his housing. We got to worry about his training. We got to worry about all of these things, right? And as a church, that would be one fifth of our entire budget if it were $100,000. We would say, well, we'd love, we'd love for you to go to missions, but we can't do it. So in most other systems, he would say, okay, I'll go raise support. So he would spend the next one or two years going from church to church to church, begging them to give him $100 a month or $200 a year. And when he finally had enough support raised, he could then go to the field. But when he went, he would have to, have to learn the language somehow. He would have to find a place to live somehow. He would basically be a, a, a parachute drop into some culture. Southern Baptists have this thing called cooperative program. We cooperate with missions. That means every single month we take a portion of what we give on Sunday morning and we send it to the cooperative program. And that is then split in a handful of different ways. Some of it goes towards doing missions here in the state. Some of it goes towards relief down in Fort Myers. Right now they're doing relief work because you gave last Sunday. A portion of that is going towards that. And then a portion is, goes to other things. portion of it goes to our sixth seminary so that when somebody wants to go to seminary to be called to preach or pastor or whatever, they can go to the seminary on a greatly reduced rate because you, last Sunday, paid for that so that they could go. But wait, there's more. You like that? A portion of that goes to this thing called the North American Mission Board and then the International Mission Board. We actually have special offerings for that as well. And out of that North or or International Mission Board, one church cooperates with 40,000 other churches and they pool their money and they say, hey, with this chunk of money, with us alone, it's this much. With 40,000 other churches, it's this much. And out of this much, Carson can go be trained, can go be assimilated, it can go to the field and can stay there for the next 20 or 30 years without ever having to come beg for money from a local church. That is why we're Southern Baptist. Because we get to voluntarily cooperate with thousands of other churches that are like-minded in belief for the same purpose and same mission of fulfilling the great commission that Jesus said was the reason we exist as God's people. I hope that excites you. And I hope that what you heard today is this. We are a Baptist church. We're a Southern Baptist church. not ashamed of that. We're not happy that sometimes Southern Baptists have done some stupid stuff. We'll admit that. And listen, if you live any length of time, we're going to do some other stupid stuff. But that's okay because we didn't need them to do stupid stuff. We do stupid stuff on our own, right? I mean, just just imagine the grace that's required for each other. But those distinctives, I think, accurately describe who we are as the people of God. Our next steps are, because we are autonomous and because we are congregationally led, we have to decide what that looks like for.